0: Hello, and in the spirit of the imminent finish of the Last Dance Jordan documentary, welcome to this all-NBA edition of the Court Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McInnes, and my special guest for this one is one of the best NBA agents in the business, Bill Duffy, co-founder of BDA Sports Management. He opens up about the state of the league in these surreal times of shutdown. Will there be a return to action? No one knows for sure yet, but he knows better than most. Duffy's been at it for 35 years and has represented a number of all-star caliber players, including some very successful international players like Yao Ming and Steve Nash. Today, he's the guy for the likes of Luka Doncic, Zach Levine, and Goran Dragic, among many others. But Hawaii basketball fans might also recognize his name from his longtime representation of Anthony Carter, whom he still advises to this day, years after AC's retirement. And yes, Duffy touches on that infamous contract snafu in 2003 that, at the time, cost AC some money, but has since been rectified. Duffy's brand also represents some former UH ballers still playing in Isaac Fotu, Stefan Yankovic, Aaron Valdez, and Roderick Bobbitt. Okay, let's get it going. My next guest on the Court Sense podcast is Mr. Bill Duffy. He's the co-founder of BDA Sports Management. Been doing this for 30 plus years. One of the best known player agents in the NBA. Bill Duffy, welcome to the Court Sense podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: Well, you come to the pod at at a very, I don't know if unprecedented is the right word, but maybe unparalleled time in the NBA with everything going on the last two months. It's been almost exactly two months since the league spontaneously shut down after the Rudy Gobert infamous positive test case with the coronavirus. How's the last two months been for you just generally speaking, Bill?
1: Well, on a a personal level, um, having been in this for 35 years and traveling on a regular basis, it's been a real godsend in terms of reengaging with my family. I have five children, um, two adult children and they're in the area. So my wife and I have been spending a lot of time together. So that's the one positive. Um, you know, other than that, it's just really, you know, perilous times for everyone. And we're, we're not living in a vacuum. So even though we're focusing on the NBA and our clients, you know, we're mindful of everyone's challenges in every sector of our culture and our society globally. So just very sensitive to everyone's needs and, you know, trying to be very uh, inspirational to a lot of people who, may or may not be able to recover you know i'm fortunate to work in you know professional basketball which you know will hopefully have some capability to resume but that is not the case for many many industries and stuff so we're we're praying for everybody just hopefully you know we can recover from this at some point hopefully sooner rather than later
0: yeah bill on the topic of you know hoping to get uh get resumed here maybe in the near future i mean i think in the last 24 hours or so there's been there was at least some reporting of, of potential momentum heading that way as far as a meeting of the, the board of directors and Adam Silver. Um, well, what's kind of the latest rumblings you know you've heard if, if there's a realistic chance that things can get get going here before too yeah. long so,
1: so it's, I mean this is not I mean this is what I've learned and understood from communicating with others, but it's not documented that it's it's going to absolutely you know follow through, but I know that everyone is desirous of playing. And that's the first step. And it wasn't until the last few days where both the players and the owners have collectively said, Hey, let's do everything we possibly can. Before that it was just kind of more reserved and analyzing, you know, the gravity and in the different markets, you know, the magnitude of each each situation in each market. But I think the collective now is, hey, let's let's be smart, let's be safe, but let's try to re engage here. And we have some time. I think they would go out as far as September. As far as playing, they they love to crown a champion. Obviously, that pushes the draft back, which makes things a little more complex. But there were discussions, as you probably are aware, about maybe starting the season in December anyway. So it just may force them to push things back, which may have been a natural occurrence anyway. So I'm confident, um, you know, the testing is going to be more available. The resources are certainly available. I know a couple of venues in Las Vegas and then Disney World are, are opening up their doors, uh, welcoming the NBA to come in and. You know, we can figure it out, and if there wouldn't be fan engagement, but the sponsors are satisfied, the players can play. I, I think we're going to put the best effort forth to, to see if we can resume play.
0: How how do your your guys, your clients, for the most part, seem to feel about this? Is is there any concern on their part for you know the health risk, or are they really chomping up the bit to get going?
1: They all want to play, um, so they're you know measured in their enthusiasm because there's still some concern, but for the most part, you know you know, they're starting to open up gyms and some of these guys are able to work out in in different markets at their high school gym. So there is some normalcy to their basketball training, but you know, they're going to be confident that the league players association will come together and put them in the best possible environment. So I think they're, you know, carrying over, you know, that belief that they wouldn't be put in harm's way.
0: Okay. Well, you know, um on. You mentioned the sense of normalcy, and there have been a couple of work stoppages in the past for the NBA, in the not-too-recent past, I think before the 2011-12 season, and going back a little further before the 98-99 season for maybe contract reasons, so not exactly – or um, CBA reasons, I should say, not exactly the same reason for shutdown, but what have you kind of noticed? or Are there any parallels as far as what guys can do off the court? Or keep themselves active or, or busy during any kind of shutdown like this.
1: Totally different because, you know, you knew ultimately with the work stoppage, whether it was a strike or, you know, the players are holding out. Um, you know, you knew there was some finite time frame that there would be some, there'd be some progress, right? And you knew it's inevitable; it's negotiating. But in this dynamic, you just have no idea. So there's no. There's no time frame. You can't say two weeks, three weeks, one month, two months. So it's like my characterization, it's like getting up in the morning, showering, getting dressed, getting in your car, and you have nowhere to go. So it's kind of like, you know, these players are training, but they don't know when they're going to play. They can't play two-on-two. You know, there's limited conditions in terms of having all the resources that they normally have. They don't have their trainers, their therapists. So it's just totally different than anything we've ever experienced. But. Again, gotcha. basketball doesn't have an exclusive. This is the case in all the major sports, individual sports, and team sports. So it's just pretty much
0: worldwide. For you personally, Bill, or, or for your your um, company, how has this changed the way that you have to kind of go about your day-to-day or keep in touch with people or uh, plan, out, plan ahead? Because as you mentioned, there's so much uncertainty. Just um, what's it like as a sports agent during this time?
1: Yeah, so... It's weird because I I have a lot of communication engagement, both through Zoom and then through regular correspondence. What I find, which is great, is you have more extended conversations because, you know, you have more time to talk to people. And for me, typically I'm flying a couple times a week, and that takes me away from having the ability to communicate as frequently as I am now. But it's just I'm more accessible and having more significant conversations with my clients um, and with my staff. So think we're holding up pretty well I'm really proud of um, our staff is I, I don't know that an agency has done a better job and it's not me individual it's our department or our community relations department like I think we've given so much money away and put our guys in the forefront with first responders with you know food um, challenged communities like we've really I'm proud of my staff that we've really done a good job as and it's like a full-time job right whether it's RJ Barrett doing stuff in New York and Canada or John Rondo you know, in Louisville, Zach Levine in both Seattle um, or Chicago, Miles Turner, you know, his father ended up testing positive and Miles gave a nice donation to the hospital there. Oh, these wow. are just a few examples of all of our guys are stepping up and I'm really proud of that.
0: Very good. Um, Bill, you mentioned, you know, possible start of December for the, the future the next NBA season and that maybe things were being thought of heading that way anyway before all of this happened. But what is it about that that, that make, makes that maybe a, an attractive possibility? And is that one of the, the main or only kind of lasting things you see as a possibility on all of this?
1: So I feel like the analysis is that people aren't necessarily engaged with basketball until Christmas because you're competing with college football and you're competing with the NFL. So, you know, that Christmas day, everybody's at home. It's usually, you know, three or four games and everybody's sitting home watching it. That seems to be the launch of the fan engagement. So they're saying, why don't we just start it then? Because these other games aren't really that significant. Then they can push the season back a little bit or be a little more creative with the schedule. But I think it's just capturing a full audience with maximal ratings. And it seems to be that point from Christmas on that people are like, I'm into basketball now. So rather than go, you know, two months before that, they just want to hit it at its apex in terms of fan engagement.
0: Well, I mean, we're talking about the future. I also want to maybe go back in time with you a little bit to when you got started in this business. I know you were a uh, a player drafted into the NBA yourself for the, the Denver Nuggets, right? And uh, you played college ball at, at Minnesota and then I think Santa Clara to finish your college career. Um, how soon after you can, that? Or you, can, even, you
1: You've done your research well.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, how soon after that, or, or maybe even during that time, did you know you kind of wanted to get into this business or what was kind of your impetus to get that going?
1: So I've had the good fortune of having teammates um, and close friends. For instance, Ronnie Lott is, was like you know my best friend. We grew up in the same home area, so I've been able to work with him even while I was playing and you know, through his path and and still have a business relationship with him today on some private equity investments and things of that nature. But just being involved with him and his agent when he was, you know, starting to play professionally, Kevin McHale was my roommate at the University of Minnesota, and I was able to kind of help him. I was kind of a young guy who always knew about the business of sports, so I was able to help him with his agent selection process. And then Michael Thompson, who was the first pick in the draft, he was also a teammate and I was able to kind of even talk to him about his process. So I was always a student of the business of sports. So even when I was young and going down my own path as a prospect, I went down two paths. I was always thinking, you know, what what does an agent do? What does a general manager do or a coach or an owner of a team? So I was really, I had a lot of like education, I I call it educational artillery uh, to be able to help my friends. And therefore that turned into a career. It was an avocation at first, just working casually with my friends, but it became my career when I was able to hire people, uh, be hired by individuals and help them on their journeys. So it's been 35 years.
0: I read that you were a very well-traveled guy growing up. Your your dad was maybe a, an army colonel and uh, you grew up in like five different countries. Is, was that kind of the, you know, something that really maybe shaded you to leaning towards growing things inter- internationally or looking internationally to, to kind of build a player base and, and really grow things that way?
1: Yeah, you know, I have a multicultural background in terms of living. Like my dad was all over the world, so I was, you know, if you grow up in United States and exclusive United States, you're probably not, you know, real knowledgeable about other cultures, cultures or races. And for me, that was just very natural. I started school in Taiwan. Um, I was in kindergarten in 1964 in the first grade, in 1965 at a it's called Dominican Republic. It was an American school, but it was in Taiwan. And the only Americans in my class were myself and the famous actor Steve McQueen's daughter, Terry, um, because they were filming a movie, Sand Pebbles, at that time. So, you know, just all my friends were all Taiwanese and whatnot. And then, you know, my father was in the Philippines and Germany, Korea. Um, Then I settled and we came back to Virginia. He was uh, based at Fort Eustis. In Virginia and then we came to Southern California where my family was you know my cousins were and my dad went to Vietnam Um, so he was in and out so it's just kind of been like a nomad in some respects but that allows you to engage with a multitude of cultures so when I first had the opportunity for instance to to meet Yao Ming I had pretty good exposure to the the Asian culture and it was very helpful just and just in learning you know about the culture in general so uh, it's been an interesting journey and one that has served me well, certainly in in my career.
0: Well, you you mentioned Yao, which is the perfect segue because I mean that saga of getting Yao to the NBA is one that's I think been been written about somewhat, and I know you you were right there, you know, helping that along. So, what was that process like? Was how much of a seminal moment do you feel like that was for the NBA? Kind of um, you know bridging that divide. Yeah.
1: Well, the that was a five-year odyssey um that would just turn out to be very successful but i i when i first met him and saw him i could envision the impact he'd have globally as an athlete but also as a bridge builder um, between the, the chinese culture and the and u.s culture and that proved to be true at the time we've had some setbacks over the course of the last you know year or so but i think because of Yao Ming and You know what we're able to do to to promote and market him in in both continents is that basketball is immensely popular in Asia, in China in particular, and it's pretty much because of him. So to play a small role in that, um, you know, makes me feel good. But he was the right person, the right vehicle, and the right messenger, and it all came to fruition.
0: Uh, Quick follow-up to that: you mentioned there have maybe been a little, a little bit of setbacks in regard to that that bridging lately? Uh, you know, I think before any of the coronavirus stuff in the preseason, there was that I think Daryl Morey may, maybe made some comments uh, about things in, in China that really kind of set off a little bit of a firestorm there. Have things calmed down since then, to, to your knowledge, like between the NBA and China?
1: You know, I, I think they're civil. Um, I don't, you know, I know that the fans are still watching basketball here. Um, you know, I'm just going to be optimistic that at some point you know, cooler heads will prevail and that we'll get re-engaged. Um, so I, I don't know that it's better, but obviously everybody's, you know, distracted. The, the CBA is having their challenges. The NBA is having their challenges. So I do think in, in a matter of time that we'll get re-engaged.
0: Well, on the topic of overseas play, Bill, I've seen, we've seen lately pro prospects, they're, they're maybe looking, because there is that, that year gap for a lot of guys between after they finish high school and before they're eligible for the NBA draft, they've increasingly looked either to play overseas, maybe in Europe or another league, Australia, uh maybe look to the G League before they then go into the NBA straight to the NBA draft by passing the NCAA entirely. Do you see that increasing? Is that just a is this a blip kinda until things return to, you know, college ball being one of the, the prominent avenues for players to go?
1: I'm in favor of a rule where the players can go straight from high school to the NBA. If that's their destination and their 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 skill set is at that level, I'm a proponent of that. Um, but I also would not be opposed to players once they decide to go to school that it's it's a two-year deal. Um, you know, that you always have to be flexible, but I'm very sensitive to the fact that a lot of these young men who are ultimately going to be pros don't necessarily get educations. And, you know, to fall back on or, or make it as, you know, I, when I say fall back, I mean, you have to be primarily educated to be successful anyway, whether you're educated in school or you just learn, you know, as you get older through exposure and relationships and experiences. But, you know, I, I just think too many athletes don't get the educations that are, you know, helping, they can help them. Now, again, like Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas, they played two years in college each and ended up graduating I know Shaquille ended up leaving early and he ended up graduating. So you can still get your education. But no matter, I'm for the players going straight from high school to the league, but I really would love to embrace the concept of of them understanding the importance of an education as they become role models and more prominent because you want them to be whole people and and be successful not just be athletes that are highly successful and highly wealthy but not necessarily educated.
0: Gotcha. Well, Bill, I wanted to ask you, about a couple of your specific guys, your specific clients uh, before you got a run. And, you know, I think Luka Doncic jumps to the top of the list of, of people recognizing uh, his talent and his future in, in the league at only 21 years of age. I think he just turned 21. How surprising to you, or maybe not at all surprising, based on what you'd seen out of him in the EuroLeague or whatnot, is what he's accomplished so far in the, in the association?
1: Well, you know, he's a certifiable killer. Um, as you can tell, he's just unbelievably competitive, loves the game, has the entire skill set, the determination, the winning pedigree. Guy's got ice water in his veins and just pure passion. So, you know, I'm not surprised because, I, you know, he's a, he's a physical player, he's strong, and the EuroLeague is more physical. So over here, it's, it's kind of a cakewalk in the sense that you can't really touch anyone. You notice when he gets in the lane, there's really no impediment because you can't body him up and he's six to eight. So he's always near the rim, but he sees the floor. Like yeah, I'm just so happy for him because he's just loving it. And you know, it's, it's just, he's in a perfect role. The guy's like a basketball savant, a basketball genius. And you know, he's the only client I've ever had where he, he just knows it all. Like you don't really have to advise him or say, Hey, what about this? What about that? Like he kind of just nods. Cause he already knows like, it's amazing. Steve Nash was like that too, in many ways where you, you thought, Hey, let me give him some advice. And, and you said go, you know, he really already knows. Right. So, you know, he just has it. And Luca has that in,
0: in spades. When you say they already know, are you speaking more to like things like, you know, off the court things, how, how to deal with say the public or the media or or sponsors or and things of that nature?
1: Well, I think, you know, Steve Nash is a very, you know, eloquent spokesperson, And he's, you know, mature, he was college, graduated. But I think Luca has pointed out himself brilliantly that he studied LeBron James and he sees that LeBron James doesn't get in trouble, manages his life. And I think, you know, these guys can, they're in harm's way when they're out in the public, you know, as far as partying or socializing or whatever, the things that they're vulnerable to. But I think he's picked up on the best of the best in terms of just how you manage yourself as a professional, how you're a role model. And I think Luca's embraced that. So he's pretty much a genius the best i can tell
0: and steve i mean he's been such an ambassador for the game for you know a couple decades now uh even in his post-playing days what what it is about that guy (laughs) he's canadian my my mom's family's canadian so i'm i'm a little uh partial to that but what is it about steve nash that maybe made him one one of the real ambassadors among not just your player base but for the, the game as a whole
1: well he's a giver he's totally selfless I don't think of him as an NBA Hall of Famer. I look at him as a Hall of Fame human being. Like, he's the nicest, kindest, um, you know, most loyal. Like, every quality you could think of. And it's amazing how many NBA players come to him for advice. Like, these are well-known players who are all-stars in their own right. And he kind of is like a, a maestro. Like, helping them through their challenges. Or they'll come into Southern California. They'll work out with them for a couple of days. Like, just he's a giver. And he's received a lot because he's a giver, but just a great human being. And uh, you haven't seen the end of him. He's still going to have a huge impact on the game.
0: Well, one more specific guy I got to ask you about, and it's somebody that the Hawaii fans here know very, very well. That's Anthony Carter who was a player who's had a lot of success here, went onto the league, had a very extended NBA playing career. And I believe you were his agent for the entire time or at least majority of the time. Well, the whole time, and I still
1: advise AC. He called me a couple weeks ago because he has a son, and he and his wife were deciding on a couple college options. So they pulled me on the phone and, and kind of advised him. Yeah, yeah, AC, you know, like so amazing. Um, you know, the, the background he came from, you know, Crim High School in Atlanta. Like, I believe he had nine uncles that were in jail at one point, like, literally was playing in the parks um, for money. And then someone fortunately identified him. He went to junior college, saddled back in LA, and then UH, Riley, and those guys recruited him. And it was just, he's had a really successful, successful career. And throughout his career, I know we had a, a, a mishap um, in, early in his career. And we, we obviously took care of that and turned that from a negative into a positive because, you know, it was a $4 million, 4, $4.1 million dollar payment. We turned that into an annuity form, which basically helped guide him, you know, through his post career. And then I've guided him in his coaching aspirations. And now he's on the Miami Heat bench. Like, he's going to coach for a long time. So it's been a great story. Um, I'm just so happy and proud of him as he's built his own family and, you know, just really over, over overcame abject, you know, challenges in his background to be just unbelievable. The, he loves Hawaii. I know he was great for UH there. Uh, really made some noise there for those two years there together. So, yeah, he's been a real success story. I'm happy that we've been a part of that.
0: Well, Bill, I know you got to run here in a minute. I will close by asking you about uh, kind of one of the, the cultural milestones that at least we still have right now, and that's the Last Dance uh, Jordan documentary, which is going into, I believe, the final weekend episodes nine and ten uh, this Sunday. I, I think you've been you've been watching it. I'm pretty sure every hoophead out there has been been watching it pretty religiously. So you you kind of came up through this industry in the '90s when when all this stuff is you know, happening that's been, been uh, put out there for everyone to consume all over again. What has it been like for you to, to see all this and how it's kind of captured the imagination of everyone all over? Yeah, well, I was in the
1: business at the time representing players, and I represent a lot of players who played against the Bulls then. And um, I, It just, it shows, you know, how, you know, Michael Jordan was just unbelievable. And you back then, I just remember, like, if you didn't watch him play the game, the the game when it was being played, you'd see the highlights that night. I just remember calling people. i say, did you see what Jordan did tonight? Did you see what Jordan did tonight? And I actually played against him in college. So I saw him when he was a sophomore and I was a senior when we played North Carolina. So I saw him in the beginning and I saw how he was very shy and kind of, I don't want to say meek, but just very reserved. And then when you see how demonstrative and aggressive and assertive and, and how leadership oriented he was, a different style of leadership, but one that obviously was effective, but what, what I'm using this for is to show our younger clients, like how hard you have to work, how dedicated you have to be. And the, the most compelling thing he said that I'm using is, you know, cause we're in an industry with these young athletes where they all want endorsements, and they want all the attention before they achieve. And the one compelling thing Jordan said was, look, I got all this off the court stuff because of the way I performed. So you, 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 you become a star, you become a winner, and then all this off-court stuff comes—the endorsements and all that. Unfortunately, nowadays it's the opposite, where everybody wants everything before they achieve. And he's kind of making everyone understand: like, you got to kick butt on the court, you got to win, and then all this, all the fanfare and all the, you know, all the accompanying, you know, benefits come once you achieve. So, and then I also like the physicality of the game. We're just getting to see how it was as opposed to now, and I think these these younger guys are appreciating, man. You know, when Detroit tells you that their objective was to knock him on his tail when he's in the lane, like that was their objective, like knock him on his butt. Like, we don't have anything like that now. And it's just hilarious when these guys would, and I, I know even earlier than that era, guys would just be fighting and punching and they'd barely get a technical. They would just separate them. Now, if you punch someone, you're out like five games. So, and I tend to like the old school, the physical game. That's just my personal preference
0: and quick follow to that bill i think in the end of episode seven which was this past weekend was maybe one of the more poignant moments of the documentary so far jordan getting a little emotional talking about his relationship with his teammates and and maybe why he had to be so hard on some of those guys and um what was your kind of take on that as as both as you know filmmaking as as, as documentary and also how how you just read his emotions there
1: it's just riveting like for michael jordan to expose himself. I mean, the guy's about to cry when he's talking about his passion for winning. So I just, I sign up for that. Like that's what our, our culture needs, loyalty, teammates, camaraderie, putting the team ahead of your individual agenda. And even all the stuff going on behind the scenes with Scottie Pippen's contract and Jordan himself being underpaid, but they put all that aside and they, they won. And you know, the long story is, you know, Scottie Pippen was underpaid when he was on the bulls, but he did get paid when he went to Portland and with Houston. So he made his money later, but he made it because he won. So, I mean, that's the, that's the story there, the storyline, but yeah, I'm just, this is so amazing. and I'm enjoying every second of it.
0: Bill Duffy. Thanks so much for making a little time on the the court sends podcast. Be safe to you and your family and hopefully we'll be able to watch some NBA basketball here pretty soon.
1: Okay. I appreciate it. I I love your show. Keep doing a great job. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All
0: right. That's it for this week. Everybody enjoy the Jordan documentary finale, and I'll see you on the other side of it.